0: All right, Galatians chapter 6, Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul's final instructions and exhortations related to the true gospel. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and remember we are studying all of this in relation to sin and judgment and our need to understand sin and have correct judgment related to sin. Chapter 6, verse 1, 1 to 18. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting, In regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap. Corruption, But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. The Apostle Paul has some final exhortations here in chapter 6. In verses 1 to 5, it has to do with humbly helping a brother who has sinned. Verses 1 to 5, humbly in humility, in gentleness, in meekness, helping a brother, someone who is in Christ, who has sinned, to help him overcome his sin and to restore him, helping him upon his repentance to be restored to fellowship. That's in verses 1 to 5. He starts in verse 1 with an appeal, as he does both here and also towards the end of the letter, where he says, In verse 1, brethren, and also at the end, 618, brethren. He's appealing as brothers in Christ on what to do. If we are in the family of God, then he says, Even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted." If a man is caught, which means it is seen by witnesses, he is caught in the act. When one sees there should be witnesses, as it says in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, there should be two or three witnesses. As it says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, there should be two or three witnesses, This is when a man is caught in any trespass, caught in any sin, any transgression. Here it's called a trespass as though he has crossed the boundaries of what God has prescribed or what God has delineated as being good and right. He has avoided staying within the boundaries of what God has set for him and he's gone and trespassed, gone to someone else's property transgressed and transgressed not only against another person, but especially against God. So when this happens, what should happen? Should we leave it alone? Should we sweep it under the rug? Should we say nobody is perfect? Should we say we just do the best we can? We don't know his motives. We don't know his intentions. Well, he meant well. How are we supposed to respond to it? Are we supposed to say, that I'm busy with my own business. No, he says here, you who are spiritual and the spiritual man according to 1 Corinthians 6 uh, chapter 2 6 to 16, the spiritual man according to 1 Corinthians 2 6 to 16 is one who has the spirit of God within him and one who is walking according to the Holy Spirit. Not Meantime, not at the time he's helping another dealing with his own sins, his own notorious sins, his own flagrant sins. He's not dealing with his sins in that way. Not that he is a perfect man, but he is not openly living in sin himself so that he is in no position to help one caught in a trespass. He cannot be a hypocrite Remember what Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 1 to 6. He told the hypocrite, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log that is in your own eye, out of your own eye, then you will see clearly clearly enough to to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Take the log out of your own, then you can take the speck out of your brother. This is the spiritual man, he means here, the one who is walking with Christ, And who is in a position to help one who is in sin. Then he says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restoration, restoration to fellowship, restoration to worship, restoration in terms of encouragement and interaction, association, eating meals. We're supposed to avoid eating meals with one who is unrepentant, according to 1 Corinthians 5. 9 to 13. It says there, do not associate with a so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to be eating with such a one. It says, 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 9 to 13. But here he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Gently. And why is it that Gentleness should be practiced in this regard. Why is it that sometimes the Bible expects harsh, stern, and firm words? Dog, hypocrite, you fool. Why does the Bible sometimes say that, or even as the Apostle did, to the Galatians? He said in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. He accuses them of being bewitched also in chapter 3 verse 1. He also says in 4:16, "Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth?" In these ways he has spoken very firm and stern words to them, putting them in their place. Well, what's the difference in this situation? When one is staunchly proud and stubborn in sin, it takes a hammer to crush the rock. Is not my wor- word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters a rock? Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. When one is obstinate, then it takes equal and greater force to break the obstinance. And that's the time to call somebody a fool, to say, you are a dog, you are a swine, you are a hypocrite. But when someone is repentant, humbly repentant, then it's time for a spirit of gentleness, tenderness, to be able to help one get restored. Yes, this does depend on repentance. We'll see this in a moment. It depends on repentance. This restoration must be preceded by the repentance of the trespasser. Further, he says, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. There is a word of caution. We are helping somebody with a particular sin, but what about our own sins? If we are approaching it in arrogance, then we are susceptible to sin ourselves. And it could be something that happens while we're helping the other. It could be something that happens right after we finish helping the other because we handled it in a wrong and pompous way. It could also come back and haunt us. Maybe the same sin or some other sin. In reference to restoration and that being dependent upon repentance. Luke 17, Luke seventeen three to four. Luke 17, verse three. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's what the apostle has been doing in the first five chapters of Galatians. He's been rebuking the Galatians. And if he repents, forgive him. This is now what he's teaching in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. He's saying, this is the method, this is the thing that must happen. There must be restoration, there must be forgiveness. If he repents, notice that conditional statement verse 3. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents. Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. This is when Peter the Apostle, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Peter the Apostle asks the Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Then Jesus, he preaches a parable. This is the parable of the slave who owed much money to his master. But also this slave had other slaves who owed him money. The master Forgives the slave, but the slave does not forgive his fellow slaves. And notice it says, it says in chapter 18, verse 32. Actually, let's read 30, uh, 29, 29 to 35. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him. That's the key word right there. Entreat or petition would be equivalent to, please forgive me, I repent, okay? To entreat him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Forgiveness upon repentance, upon entreaty, is a requirement, and it is characteristic of those who have been forgiven by God, and God will forgive us as we forgive others. 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11 We have here someone who has repented and the Apostle Paul exhorting the Corinthians to restore him. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also." For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This man that was punished by the church, verse 6 says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So sufficient punishment has been meted out, to this transgressor. And then he says in verse 7, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This man has come to a realization of his wickedness, of how he trespassed against the Lord, and now he is sorrowful with a genuine sorrow. That's why the apostle says Corinthians you ought to forgive him because we don't need him to be overburdened, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And this would be a tactic of Satan. He says in verse 11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So when true sorrow, repentant sorrow has occurred, then forgive, which is also 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So forgive the repentant one with the spirit of gentleness, tenderness, meekness, mildness. Then the caution The caution was, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. We said that it would be easy for one helping another to be proud and pompous in how he approaches it. So it takes some self-control, some reservation, some humility to understand the nature of sin and how easily we can be enticed and entrapped to sin while we're helping another sinner. Romans 11:20. Romans 11:20 says, "Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. No conceit or no pride" But fear, fear God. Romans 12:3. 12, 12:3 3, 12, 3, For through the grace given to me I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 12:16 Romans 12:16 Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be wise in your own estimation. First Corinthians 10: 12 and 13. First Corinthians 10:12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And why? No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. Common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. For these reasons, we have to be cautious as we help another. But with the caution, it should not lead to Escape. It should not lead to neglecting our duties. That's why, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. When sin occurs, we shouldn't have blindness. We shouldn't say, let's sweep it under the rug. We shouldn't ignore it. It says, verse, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Sin is a burden. We need to help somebody else in sin, not ignore it, not say, I don't want to get my hands dirty in this one. Well, when you have the responsibility, according to the context, we're not talking about meddling in people's affairs, but when you have the ability and the responsibility to help another, we ought to bear one another's burdens. And thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ relates to this. How so? It's here in Galatians 6.2 and 1 Corinthians 9.21 where we have this phrase, law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? We may say it's the same as Galatians 5.13-15 especially verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And according to James 2, 8 to 13, James 2, 8 to 13, and Romans 13, 8 to 10, in these two places, this you shall love your neighbor as yourself commandment reappears. And it appears in the context of of keeping the Ten Commandments. So that we might say, if we truly love God, we will love our neighbor. That's 1 John 4, 19 to 21. If we truly love God, we will love our neighbor. And if we love our neighbor, we will help him to keep the Ten Commandments as we strive to keep the Ten Commandments as the rule and standard of our sanctification. Not as the means of our justification, not as works righteousness and works salvation, but a standard of holiness and righteousness that we use to help each of us follow the Lord, follow the law of Christ, follow our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude verse four, our only master. This is the law of Christ. He means here, And he's been preaching all along in this letter. So he returns now to putting us in our place, humility, in verses 3 and 4. Yes, we are to bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. But then he reminds us of the need for humility. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If we think we're something when we're actually nothing apart from Christ. And even that is the grace of Christ. Chapter 1, to 6-10 spoke of the grace of Christ. So the only reason we are something is the grace of Christ. Even Romans 12, 3-5 reminded us that we each have been, by God's grace, been allotted a measure of faith. So, no need to to boast and think we are something. It's only self-deception. It's often the case that pride swells up, and when it swells up, and when it bubbles up, we drink it down, we guzzle it, and then we are like a drunkard intoxicated by our own pride and unable to reason and understand the reality of what is staring at us in the face. So he says, we might think we're something when we're actually nothing. We're just deceiving ourselves. So what instead should we do? Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. What does he mean in verse 4? Examine his own work work. Let him do that. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge lest you be judged yourselves, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to... Pieces. First, examine ourselves. First, remember our own sins. First, be humble ourselves. Then, reach out to help another in humility. Verse 5. For each one shall bear his own load. Verse 5. Has been made to contradict verse 2. At least it causes some interpreters to be perplexed. What in the world does the apostle mean in verse 2 compared to verse 5? In verse 2, he means help another. He means to help another, in humility, of course. But in verse 5, he's saying, we are each going to be held accountable for our own sins. Verse 5 has to deal with responsibility or accountability for our own sins. God will judge us for our own sins. And it would be a sin if we helped somebody else in sin with arrogance and in the wrong way, contrary to the Bible. That would be another sin. While we're trying to help another sinner, we ourselves are sinning in that. In this way, he is putting some sobriety and putting some solemnity in how we are approaching it by saying, in verse 5, we will be held to account for our own sins, so we better watch what we do. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Romans 14, 10 to 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. First Corinthians three ten to fifteen. First Corinthians three ten to fifteen. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 2 Corinthians 5:10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5:10. Verses 6 to 10, Galatians 6:6 6, 6 to 10. Here He is encouraging the material support of the ministry. In 6, 6 to 10, material support, physical support of the ministry. This passage, especially verse 9 and 10, are often used in reference to doing good works or good deeds toward other people meaning those outside the church. And that is true. But let's read it in context again. 6.6 to 10. Our Bibles will likely paragraph these verses together. Correct? And usually what happens in the first sentence of a paragraph, and even in the last sentence of a paragraph, the thesis of the paragraph, the gist of the paragraph is introduced in the first sentence, and it's often summarized in the last, correct? And that's what we have here as well. Verse 6, And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. What does that mean? Those who are taught the word, the word of God, the word of Christ, those who are taught this word are to share all good things with him who teaches. He's talking about compensation, remuneration, some kind of income for teaching spiritual truths to the hearers. He says, let that happen. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Do not be deceived. He's talking about self-deception, blindness in sin. Don't be deceived. It could happen. And what is the deception? That we could mock God, that we could taunt God, that we could deceive even God or hide from God what we are thinking, what we are saying, what we are doing in reference to this subject. We can't do that. We cannot hide anything from God, pretend that we are greater than God, more omniscient than God, more powerful than God. We cannot do that. When we do it, whether we say it with our mouth or not, whether we admit it or not, we are mocking God. It's mockery of God. And then the principle. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap." Who does not know that that is the case? If we were to plant an apple tree, are we going to expect an elephant to be coming uh, off the branches of the tree? No. If we were to plant corn, are we going to expect insects, ants, ant hills? What are we doing when we plant corn? You see, this is what he means. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So whatever we sow, whatever we scatter on the ground, whatever we plant in the soil, we're going to reap that which we planted. Verse 8, a warning. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. Corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we sow to the flesh, it will bring about corruption. So whatever is deficient in our sowing or planting, it's going to bring forth, it's going to bring a harvest of corruption, rotten fruit. No, nothing, any, Anything that's good, not for eternal life. However, when we live this way, this is according to the Spirit, the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. It relates to godliness, sanctification, or holiness, and the outcome is eternal life. Verse 9, And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. This is a principle which is true in this immediate context. We also know it to be true generally. In the immediate context, sharing all good things with him who teaches. Don't lose heart in doing that. Don't be miserly. Don't be embittered. Do it according to God's word. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. In due time God rewards, God gives us a large harvest, an abundant harvest, if we do not grow weary. Now this is no guarantee that if we sow $100, we're going to reap $1,000. If we sow $1,000, we're going to reap $10,000. It's nothing like that. That's not what he means here. He's talking about how God does provide for our needs, but most importantly, what we reap, when he says that in due time we shall reap, what will we reap? Verse 8, eternal life, eternal riches the wealth of heaven is of greater value than the wealth of the earth. Then he summarizes again, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So now he's returning, or summarizing all the things that he's saying here. When we have an opportunity We should help whomever we can help. An example of this is the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is in Luke 10, 25 to 37. And that is, the Samaritan saw a beaten and robbed man stranded on the roadside. He saw an emergency. He saw an urgency. And when he saw, he helped. They did not know each other. When he saw, he helped. That's what he means while we have opportunity. That's an example of it. Let us do good to all. So that relates to somebody outside. And this is even a Samaritan helping a Jew. Likely, the man was a Jew. Helping him, and that's somebody on the outside. But then he says, especially to those who are of the household of the faith, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is likely what the apostle meant in Galatians 2.10. Galatians 2.10. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Those in the household of God who have needs, we should be more acutely aware of their needs and help them, help them to overcome And be able to provide for their needs, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And then, a full circle back to verse 6. And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Isn't he in the household of the faith, in the local church? So therefore, assistance and compensation for that. Alright, now a couple of a few cross references on this paragraph. One we'll go to Romans fifteen, twenty-seven. Romans fifteen twenty-seven with Galatians six six. Galatians six six a cross reference. Romans fifteen twenty-seven. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. In this case, it has to do with the Gentiles helping with material needs, the Jews, the poor Jews in Judea and Jerusalem. The Gentiles were helped by those Jews because those Jews were the ones who sent forth the missionaries and some of them went in person. To these Gentilic cities and, and regions and preach the gospel. So the spiritual benefit was delivered to the Gentiles. Now it's the Gentiles' turn to deliver the material benefits back to the Jews. First Timothy 5:17 and 18. First Timothy 5:17, "Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He says, double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Why? Is this Paul's invention? No, verse 18, for the scripture says. He's proving it based on scripture. Two scriptures, 1 Timothy 5.18 Quotes Deuteronomy twenty five four Deuteronomy twenty five four and Luke Luke ta- chapter ten Luke chapter ten and verse seven ten seven That was quoting Moses and quoting Jesus our Lord in Luke 10, verse 7. Now, on the matter of not being deceived and mocking God, sowing and reaping. Not being deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Here is a matter as well where people easily deceive themselves. And he says not to be deceived and mock God thereby. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. How so? In thinking that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, Effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous ones, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't be deceived. When you say that, you're mocking God, actually. Because God has already said, this is not the case. So why don't you already know it? Why are you being deceived? In your deception, it's not mere deception, it's mockery of God's word of truth when he has already declared that that is not the case so do not mock god job 13 the book of job chapter 13 7 to 11 job 13:7 will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Yes, indeed. That's the answer. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now the flesh and the spirit, there's only two kinds of sowing, two kinds of planting and reaping, flesh and spirit. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's either the flesh or the spirit. Hosea 8 7, he says, Hosea 8 7, for they sow the wind and they reap the the whirlwind the standing grain has no heads it yields no grain should it yield strangers would swallow it up sow the wind and reap the whirlwind hosea 10:12 and 13 hosea 10:12 sow with a view to righteousness reap in accordance with kindness Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Losing heart. It's easy to lose heart in doing good. But we are also encouraged not to lose heart. 1 Corinthians 15:58. 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 58 2 Corinthians 4 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1 Therefore since we have this ministry as we received mercy we do not lose heart 416 416 to 18 why do we not lose heart because our eyes are fixed on eternal life 416 fixing our gaze on earthly and worldly matters and eternal matters. If it's on eternal matters, we will not grow weary. Then, having opportunity. Having opportunity and seeking to help. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. He says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Proverbs twenty. 4 Proverbs 24:11 and 12 Proverbs 24: 11 Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, "See, we did not know this." Does he not consider it, who weighs the hearts and does not does he not know it, who keeps your soul? and will he not render to man according to his work? Proverbs 31, 31, 8 and 9. 31, 8. Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. 31, 8. And dumb is the... Older way of saying those who are silent or mute, who have no ability to open their mouth and speak up for themselves. That's the context of that. So when they have a need, we have opportunity. We should help. John chapter four, John four, 35 to 38 35 to 38. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor while we have opportunity. Firstly, we must love our closest neighbor. According to Ephesians 5 28 to 29, that would be our wife, husbands toward wife. And the the reciprocal is also true. After that is the children. After that, the local church. After the local church, the rest in society. That's how it should be. First, one's own, and then spread, uh, spread abroad after that. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8 Now, some closing statements and an exhortation. It will remind us of the kind of zeal and jealousy the apostle had in the first Chapter 6:11 and following. 6:11 to 18. The apostles' zeal and jealousy, godly jealousy with righteous anger and righteous indignation. 6:11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand large letters with my own hand. He's writing this letter with his own hand. He's not using a secretary or a scribe, also called an amanuensis. He's not writing uh, his letter that way. Romans 16.22, he did write that letter with the help of Tertius. Romans 16.22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you... In the Lord, he used a helper to write. Peter did the same in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There too, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 12, he acknowledges that he used Silvanus, who's the Silas of the book of Acts, the same man, Silvanus, or Silas. He used Silvanus to write this letter. And sometimes this is what people do. They use another to write. But in this case, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul wrote with large letters, larger than the average man would write. Why did he do that? He did it with his own hand in large letters because he wanted the Galatians to know this is no forgery, this is the apostle whom you know to have written before with large letters, you know my handwriting, and you know how large I write, and you know... I write largely, likely, because of my eyesight problems, which is chapter 4, chapter 4, 14, Galatians four fourteen and 15. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. They loved him so much and they knew he had this problem that if they could, they would have just plucked out their eyes and given them new eyes so that Paul would not be handicapped by his sight. This is likely the reason why, it doesn't say it categorically, but this is likely putting these verses together the reason he's writing with large letters with his own hand, he wants the Galatians to know this is no fake letter, this is no false apostle, this is your beloved apostle Paul writing to you with great urgency that you must understand everything I'm writing here is the absolute truth and revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't doubt it. Believe it with your whole heart. Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. There are those who are showmen, actors. They don't care for sincerity, genuineness. They don't care for the truth. They make a good showing in the flesh. They're more about They are all about the show and not about the substance. This is the way they are. And when they do that, they try to compel others to practice the sins that they practice. Try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, why, if they were not circumcised, would they be persecuted for the cross of Christ? Because everybody else was doing it. And if you end up being one out of 10 and nine people are on the bandwagon and you're not there, then they will persecute you for saying the opposite and for doing the opposite. They'll persecute you and ridicule you. That's what he said in chapter one. He said when chapter one, verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He means that if I were doing everything the way everybody else was doing it, I would not be persecuted. But because I'm a loner, I'm among the few, they hate me because I'm preaching against what everybody else is preaching. And they don't want to be persecuted. They want to please men. They are men-pleasers, people-pleasers, as we say today. That's what they are. They don't want to be persecuted. Then, verse 13, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Here he gives another reason, another fact, and then a reason. He says, they don't even keep the law themselves. They say, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, but they don't keep the law because nobody can keep the law, which is also made very clear earlier in three, chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Chapter 5, verse 3, he says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you introduce works righteousness, you have to do everything. Everything. So they don't even keep the law. They preach the law for works righteousness, but they don't obey it. They are hypocrites. Now, why do they do it, though? It says in verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. See, if they can persuade others to follow them, then they can tell the others in the crowd, look, I brought him along. Now we have more. And they want to boast in the converts they make to show to the others in the crowd, look, I'm one of you. I just made another convert. They want to boast in the flesh of a new convert, a false convert, of course, but a convert. They want to boast. But 14, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm not going to boast about anything except the cross of Christ. Why should I boast about anything? Nothing else matters in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I want you to know. 1 Corinthians 118, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1 18 And a study on boasting and true wisdom is 1 Corinthians 1 to 4. But look at 1 31. That just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast, we should boast in the Lord. And how? In the Lord. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only in the cross. If we understand the cross, then we have understood the gospel correctly. If we don't understand the cross, we do not understand the gospel. Which includes verse 14. He says, The world was crucified to me and I to the world. The world doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I have become dead to the world and the world is dead to me. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. Galatians 2.20, he says. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Verse 15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Why are we making such a big deal about this ritual? Only the flesh, only perverse, sinful, base human wisdom would make a big deal about this ritual of circumcision and make it a matter of salvation and have confidence in it for one's own salvation but it doesn't matter nothing matters what matters the new creation and no circumcised man automatically is a part of the new creation it doesn't happen that way how does it happen 2 Corinthians 5:17 2 Corinthians 5:17 therefore if any man is in Christ he is a new creature The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. If we are in Christ. And how does that happen? Romans 2. Romans 2, 28 to 29. Actually, 25 to 29 is the context. We'll pick it up at 28. Romans 2, 28. He's also here preaching against Christ a misunderstanding of circumcision and even uncircumcision. 2.28 For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Heart circumcision and the new creation go together not otherwise galatians 6:16 6, and those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them even or and or that is upon the israel of god We must walk according to this rule. Only then will we have the peace and mercy of God upon us, we who are called the Israel of God. What does that little phrase mean, Israel of God? Some think it means only the Jews. All Jews go to heaven. Others will say the Jews who believe in Christ that's what he means by Israel of God. That's who he's mentioning in 616. The Jews or the Hebrew people who believe in Christ. They are the Israel of God. However, neither of those two are biblical. Israel of God means all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ are given this term of endearment, Israel of God. This is the noble, endearing phrase that refers to all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. How do we know this? Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ Jesus, 3.14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3.28-29. to 3.28-29. to 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are Abraham's offspring, or the Israel of God, if we belong to Christ. This he has stated absolutely clearly already earlier in Galatians. But this has also been a theme in the prophets. We'll take, for example, two references in Isaiah, the prophet. It is throughout the Old Testament that God reiterated this point. He repeated it again and again and again. Numerous references, but for the sake of brevity, we'll mention just two, Isaiah 44, five. Isaiah 44, verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Then go to chapter 56, Isaiah chapter 56, 56, 6 to 8, 56, 6 to 8. Also, the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, there we have it, the foreigners, To minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That verse may be familiar from the New Testament, Matthew 21.13, Matthew 21.13, Mark 11.17, where our Lord Jesus quotes this verse, Isaiah 56.7. Let's continue. Verse 8, Isaiah 56.8. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, yet others... I will gather to them, to those already gathered. He says there, the dispersed of Israel, or as it says in John eleven forty nine 49 to 53, the children of God scattered abroad. The dispersed of Israel, or children of God scattered abroad. He says, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So the ones already gathered and are beloved by God, saved, redeemed in Christ, they are called Israel in a true sense. And those abroad, brought into this one fold, one group, they are also called Israel. So the two of them together, Jew and Gentile together, are called Israel. This is the meaning of Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. If all this is true, We should not cause trouble for the Apostle Paul. Whether now, in a verbal sense, to denounce him, to criticize him, to carp against him, no. Nobody should blame the Apostle Paul or undermine the Apostle Paul. I guarantee you, nobody has suffered like him nobody has suffered like him for the truth. We may complain about our circumstances and life, but nobody has suffered like him. That's why he says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. It's as though he is a literal slave, and a literal slave will have markings on him identifying who his master is. Just like cattle are branded, even slaves sometimes have markings on them. Either way, however he meant it, whether as a slave or as a cattle, a pe- uh, uh, an animal, he's a brand mark of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus. He's always doing the will of Jesus, which includes persecution. Now, Jesus doesn't whip us. He doesn't brand us literally But to the extent that our enemies beat us, our enemies whip us, our enemies stone us, and we have the evidence of being battered and bruised, we have the scars on our body. In that sense, we show we belong to Jesus. This the Apostle Paul experienced. Let me read an excerpt from 2 Corinthians. If we were to read many examples, we would go through 2 Corinthians because every other chapter has a list. And we'll read an excerpt from chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 30. 23 to 30, 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times, it says 39 lashes. Beaten times without number. He can't even keep track of them. 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and Exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. So may we never condemn, criticize, mitigate the true gospel preached by the Apostle Paul. And for those who embrace this true gospel, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. We have his grace, and we pray for more grace to continue in this grace for all eternity. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.